Good morning. Mixing it up a little this morning. Welcome back. We're going to be continuing in our core faith series. And if you were with us last week, we heard about the credibility of the Word of God, the Bible. How did we get it? Why is it true? And all of those things. So if you missed that, I would encourage you to either check that out online or take part in that small group series. Uh, but many people use those same questions to re- refute the Bible. It's, is it credible? How do we know? And so that's why that's an important study. But today we're not talking about the Bible. We are. We are using the Bible to understand another aspect of our faith. That is the church, another often criticized aspect of Christianity. And since you're here today, you're either part of a church body or you know somebody that is. And so, when we talk about uh, why people uh, don't go to church, when we talk about church to people, we get these reasons, well, why, why don't you go to church? And one website compiled this list, and they, they tried to categorize it down into 10 reasons. I'd like to share these with you. Perhaps you've heard them or even said them. Uh, first, we have Christians are judgmental and negative. We've heard church is boring. The church is exclusive. The church is homophobic. We've heard I don't like organized religion, which more recently has come out as I can follow Jesus all by myself. I don't need the church. The churches are full of hypocrites. The church just wants your money. Life is better without religion. Christians live on another planet. Or the most common one of all, I don't have time. We can talk about these objections. We could talk about them all summer. We could do a whole series. We're going to get to a few of them today, but in spite of all of these, these objections, Jesus states in Matthew chapter 16 that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Study of the church in theological terms, is ecclesiology. That's your word for the day. What is the church? When did it start? What's its purpose? How should it operate? Who's leading it? Who is the church body, and why should you, as a follower of Christ, be in church, be part of a church? We're going to answer most of these questions from Scripture today. Um, But I want to make something clear. Uh, This is an overview of what we study about the church through Scripture. And so in the back, at the back tables, I've got a handout ready for you that's going to provide some more study uh, and some more um, answers to some of the things we talk about, but also some of the things we're not going to be able to get to today. So you can feel free to check that out or just come talk to me. Either one's fine. So we're going to start here. What is the church? And I think most of us in this room could answer this question to some degree. And so let's start here. Let me ask you a question. Is the church a building? No. Even though we talk about church as an event that takes place at a location, most of the time we know that the church is the collective followers of Christ. We go to church when the body of Christ gathers together for worship. If we're going to look at the New Testament, we'd find the word for church in the Greek is ekklesia, which is meaning an assembly or a congregation, and it refers to people, you and I, just like we all affirm just now. But outside of the New Testament, ekklesia is a general term. It doesn't refer to a religious body. It's just a congregation, people gathered together. But in the New Testament, we see this term take on new meaning. It's referring to all of every tribe, nation, and tongue who have professed faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation and have received the promised Holy Spirit. 
when we use the term today, it can refer to a local assembly, like Grace Chapel, or it can refer to the universal church, which is all believers in Christ everywhere. To be more specific, and I know some of us really like longer definitions, myself included, I'll give you this. The, de- the church can be defined as a congregation of people who have received the gift of salvation, to Christ's death and resurrection, they gather for worship and ministry no matter how formal or informal. Each local church is part of the universal church, but is also complete in its local representation of the body of Christ. The church is universal in faith and exists under the headship of Christ. The church as a whole seeks to live out God's commands, which include holy living, the Great Commission, making known the wisdom of God, and ultimately giving glory to God. And so here we meet as a, as a local church, but we are able to participate in the global church. The uh, local and universal church are equipped completely to do the works that God has set before them, which ultimately lead to the glorification of God. And so we've got the literal definition of church, but let me ask you another question. Does, church, is, does the Bible always refer to church with the word church? Is it always so literal? No. Do we see figurative language in the Bible to refer to the church? We do. We see a lot of uh, images. We see a lot of metaphors. And so when we're starting to understand how Scripture talks about the church, we need to take a look at those. And there's quite a few. We're going to cover just a couple of them together today. The first one is that the church is the body of Christ. This is probably the most common one, the most commonly used one, the most commonly quoted one. And this illustration gives the uh, image of Christ as the head of the church. If the church is a body, Christ is the head. And the church members make up the different parts of that physical body. Since Christ is the head of the church, he leads, he guides the other members of the body. And so we are to follow his direction so that each Uh, part of the body is going to function as intended so that the whole functions as intended. We see that each member of the body of Christ, that's you and I, are not identical. If you don't believe me, we can look around, we can affirm we are not all identical. And that's a good thing because each of us has a purpose within the body of Christ. Scripture establishes the validity of this illustration. Paul uses it in Colossians 1.18. He says this, He, that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul again says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And last, and this is probably the most commonly used one, is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, 
yet one body. The next metaphor we see in Scripture is that the church is a temple for God. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And in the Old Testament, we see similar language when we talk about the temple in the Old Testament out of Exodus 40. We see that the temple is where God dwells among his people. And today, we know that the Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us. And so that's a call for each one of us to holiness, to purity, individually and collectively as the body of Christ. The last one we're going to cover today is that the church is referred to as God's flock. Paul tells the Ephesians, Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's out of Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And the first time I got to preach to you guys, we were in John chapter 10, where we saw that sheep, the symbolic representation of the followers of Christ, that's you and I, his flock, they recognize his voice, they follow him, and they can't be taken from him. We are under the perfect care of the Good Shepherd. He supplied everything we need. He walks with us through difficulties in life, and he keeps us in his care with the promise of eternal life with him. There's a reality here, though, is that we're not in eternity with Christ yet. And so we're not going to be sanctified or made perfectly holy until then. Until then, we're covered simply in the righteousness of Christ. And that's what people uh, miss when they look at the church and they see hypocrites or any other uh, mess in character. We don't gain entry to eternity with God because of our character. We gain entry to eternity because of Christ's character, because of his love for us. It's because of how perfect he was and is. It's because of the love of Christ that we seek to follow after him. We are obedient to his commands. And no, we're not going to do that perfectly yet. But we're going to do the best as we're able, out of a love for a God that first loved us, and he loved us more than we could even deserve. This truth is going to lead us to realize that the church is a divinely established institution, established by God, that is realized as a body of believers. So if Christ is the head of the church and the church is not a building, we're able to answer our next question, when did the church begin? And is the church different than the historic chosen people of God, Israel? And so some scholars, even ones that I really like, will argue about this one. And some of them will say that the church is God's people through all time, including the Old, Old Testament nation of Israel. But when we look at Scripture and we look at how Jesus talks about his church, we're going to see that the church is part of a new covenant with God. And it finds its beginning with the death of Jesus in conjunction with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So let's go to Scripture. First, Jesus speaks of the establishment of the church as a future event in his life. 
most notably before his death and resurrection. In Matthew uh, chapter 16, I read a, a bit of this earlier for you. Verses 18 and 19, he says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. All in future tense. Second, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is one of the inaugural moments of the church because it's the beginning of the new covenant with God in which we find salvation. In Acts 20, 28, which we looked at just a minute ago, we read that the church was obtained by the blood of Christ. The death of Christ is the starting point of this new covenant, a covenant with the church. It's different from the first covenant, and covenant meaning promise that was made with the nation of Israel, and salvation is no longer seen as earned, but rather is freely given out of love. Last, the church is defined as the body of Christ. We read about the body of Christ earlier, but I want to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 one more time, and I want to see that the baptism of the Spirit or the indwelling of the Spirit is what confirms us, you and I, as members in the body of Christ, the church. This is why we have membership classes. This is why we share testimonies. It's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's what confirms us as members of the church. Paul states this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so too it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit is critical to the formation and also to the unity of the body of Christ. The words of Jesus and the writings of Paul tell us that the church is a new establishment that begins here with the new covenant, and it has a drastic change in membership. Salvation is no longer at this point only available to the Jews, but rather to all nations. That's you and I. <laughs> we don't get this without this new covenant to any who would believe and trust in the work of Christ on the cross. So we know when the church began, we know who comprises the body of Christ, but what does the Bible say about how it should be led, how it should be organized? If you've been around church for any extended period in your life, you probably know that not all churches are the same. They don't all function quite the same in their organization. Yes? Perhaps some of you have Catholic roots, and some of you have Southern Baptist roots, and those are organized very differently, by the way. Uh, and some of you, like me, have non-denominational roots. Hello, here we are. Um, and all of these are organized differently. But instead of focusing on the differences in the organizational aspect, we're going to go to Scripture and see what does Scripture say about how it should be led. If you're interested in more of the, the academic aspect of how they're organized and why they're organized that way, there's some handy little charts on that handout in the back for you. So, per scripture, leadership in the church is going to consist today of two offices. We have elders, we have deacons. We have both of them here, by the way. Uh, and we're familiar with both of these because we utilize both of those offices here all the time. And Paul gives us the qualifications for each one of these offices, and we're going to start with the office of elder, and you can find those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. 
Paul tells us that they are to be willing men who are above reproach, meaning of good character. They are to be husband of one wife, self-controlled, humble, not greedy or a drunk. They are able to teach the Word of God. They are able to manage their household with dignity, and they are not a recent convert. They are firmly established in their faith. But elders are also told that they are to shepherd or to care for the church, the body of Christ, as Christ does for them. Primarily, this means that the role of elder is going to be focused on the spiritual care of the church. We do see some examples, like in James chapter 5, where the sick are to have the elders pray over them, where the elders function in, in an aspect of physically caring for the church. But the early church quickly found out that the elders can't do everything. Um, and so we see in Acts chapter 6 uh, the establishment of the deacons. The deacons are supposed to be men of good character. They're honest, spirit-filled, firmly established in their faith. We read this in Acts 6. We read this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They get to serve the physical needs of the church, and they focus on this under the authority and direction of the elders. While the elders were focused on the spiritual needs and the spiritual direction of the church, the deacons were tasked with meeting the physical needs of the church, such as uh, in the early church we see caring for widows and orphans as different communities are brought together under the name of Christ. The church today still has those needs, yes? But it also has needs uh, of caring for our meeting space. I think, the deacon, I think of the deacons here, uh, I think of their hard work in ensuring that we were able to meet together safely as safely as possible during these initial stages of COVID. I think of the, the hours of work that went into understanding how do we do that? What's the best way to do this? How do we care, not just for the building, but how do we care for the church members as they come together to keep them safe? Even in caring for this building, the care of the people of the church can be exampled. One commentator, William Mounts, he summarizes the role of the deacon like this. He says, in the writings of Paul, the deacon is the server of the church. Both the office of elder and deacon are essential to the function and care of any church body. So what's the point? We have all of the information. We have all of these uh, lessons from Scripture on how it's supposed to work, but what's the purpose of the church? It's really what most people ask when they talk about the church. What's the purpose or function of the church? And uh, Dr. James Davis summarizes the purpose. He does it in three, three statements. We're going to simplify it in just a minute. He says this, the worship of God is one purpose, the edification of the church, and the evangelization of the world. We're going to make it a little easier to remember. Three words. Can you do it? Ready? Repeat after me. Up. In. Out. Remember, I was a teacher before this. I got this. Uh, up, in, and out. Up, referring to the worship of God in the edification, the building up of the church body within itself, and out, the word of God spreading the hands and feet of Jesus going out into the world. We're going to start with up. The worship of God is our highest calling as humanity. It's our primary purpose, and this is where we are going to find true fulfillment in what it means to be human as we reflect the image of God. Colossians 3.16 instructs us on the worship of God. It says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We see the teaching of the word. We see the encouraging of the encouragement of the body. We see the singing of hymns and psalms as ways and aspects of how we worship God. We seek to do each one of those things when we gather together. But Ephesians chapter 1, 11 and 12 tells us the proper outcome when we worship God. It says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We gain much by believing in and following God, but we need to be reminded through Scripture here that following God means to seek His will and to glorify Him. That's a pretty literal definition of worship. In. The body of Christ is to edify itself within the community of faith. One of the most apparent examples of this in Scripture is out of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Paul teaches edification or means to build up as essential to the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We see similar instructions about the building up of the body of Christ in Colossians 1 and Galatians 6. The church is to edify or build up one another towards godliness. We are to pursue the gospel and godly living together as a unified body. Humans are built to be in community with one another. We're built to build each other up in this fashion. Through this building up towards godliness, we're able to live together with a common purpose and experience unity as we live out this purpose locally and globally. It's because of how we're loved by Christ that we're able to reflect that same love towards one another. The gospel takes away anything that we individually can boast in and instead turns our hearts towards following Christ together as one body. Out. The church is to evangelize throughout the world. This is controversial outside of Christianity, but very affirmed within Scripture. Does anybody remember the Great Commission? Yes, no, maybe. It's in Matthew 28. It's in uh, verses 19 and 20. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The book of Acts shows Jesus' final instructions to the apostles. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if you want to know what's really interesting about that instruction is that it's, it's the outline of the rest of the book of Acts and therefore the spread of the early church. As we were to work through the book of Acts, we would see the apostles, they wait for the Holy Spirit. They go to Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the Gentiles. But more importantly, when we look at that, we see who 
the gospel is for, who the church is supposed to evangelize. Jesus tells the apostles to go to the farthest ends of the earth with the gospel. That means everyone. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. Everybody has need of the forgiveness that's offered through it. This means that every racial, ethnic group, every sinner, every saint are in need of the gospel message. Yes, even you and I as followers of Christ need continually the gospel message. A 2021 statistic shows that of the 11,000 plus people groups living on this planet, 6,000 of them are still unreached with the written word of God. It's a local mission and an international one. That's why we send missionaries out. That's why we go out to do local missions and we go out to do international ones. Every human being was created to be fully in communion with God. But sin separates us from him. Any honest person can admit we have faults. We've made mistakes. And therefore, we've fallen short of God's standard of perfection according to his law. But through the death of Jesus in our place, we get to receive forgiveness for our sins and the gift of eternal life with God. And that's a free gift. It's given, not earned. But does belief in God make us instantly perfect? And all God's people said, no, we know this. (laughs) But will we ever be perfect in this life? No. Notice how in the Great Commission, Jesus, he doesn't command the disciples to go to this people group, change all their behaviors, and then make disciples and baptize them. He tells them to go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them his commandments. He knows that the transformation that comes with belief in Christ, it begins when we trust in Jesus for our forgiveness of sins, but that transformation is continual. True belief in God, knowing the love of God, and receiving the Holy Spirit, these are what will continue to transform us into the people of God that he desires us to be. We are supposed to be in the image of God, image bearers, to reflect the character of God, but all of that transformation starts with a simple decision to follow Jesus. Evangelism can happen in a lot of different ways. We could do yet another series on evangelism. But most commonly, we see this in sharing the word of God, in acts of service, or simply being the hands and feet of Jesus in your community. I I think of Micah 6, 8, uh, as some of the uh, ways that we can do this. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We can example the character of God when we interact with other people in this way. We get to love them in the way that Christ loved us and therefore show them who God is. In these three purposes, worship, edification, and evangelism, the church is to be unified in mission. Each of these purposes ultimately serve to glorify God and to make his character known. And that's why we're really here, isn't it? To glorify God. God, who saw fit to love us and send his son for us and make us holy and right before him. We started today with 10 reasons that people don't go to church. And you're going to keep hearing those reasons. I can promise you that. 
But we're going to finish today with 10 reasons that you should go to church. First, we see that the church is the ordained organization by God for spiritual growth in this age. The church is to teach, to lead, and to shepherd the people of God. We're made to worship God. That's part of the up, of up and out, right? We, are to, we need to learn from God's word. We need to use our spiritual gifts to help one another, which is to act as the body of Christ. We need to be encouraged uh, by others in our relationship with God. I think that one's really very important. We need to set an example to our families and to our friends of uh, what it means to follow God and provide for their spiritual welfare. We need to give financially, not for the church to be greedy as uh, the reason not to go to churches, but so that our hearts will not be ruled by greed, but also to support the work of the gospel. End of July, we're doing an event. Uh, here's your shameless plug of the day. It's a family festival. And when I look at the, the event that we're putting together, why are we putting it together? We're putting the event together as a way to reach the community with the word of God, with the community that God has put together here. To be the hands and feet of Jesus to people who don't know him. But when I also look at that, I see that that festival was put together out of donations and out of volunteers. This is why we give. We give for the gospel. We give God our first fruits. We need to have an eternal perspective, not a temporal one. This changes how we walk every day in life. We need a break from our daily routine of work, work and more work, and we need to rest and we need to commune with God. We need to set an example to the world that Christians do, in fact, love one another. Amen? Yes, we're messy. Yes, we're broken. No, it's not always easy, but we are unified in the spirit of one body. We heard so many times today. And we are forgiven through the blood of Christ. And that's why we're able to love one another despite all the mess. Question. Where's the youth? Anybody been to the zoo recently? The penguin exhibit reopened. And uh, that's going to tell us a little something here. Penguins are one of the few warm-blooded animals. They live in Antarctica. And... They can breed in temperatures of negative 22 degrees and even in winds of up to 125 miles per hour. But how do they survive these harsh conditions? And one of the main ways is they huddle together. If you've ever seen the National Geographic stuff, they all get together on the big ice cube. And the ones on the outside, they start to get cold. So what do they do? They work their way to the inside and then they get warm. And the ones that are on the inside, they work their way towards the outside, taking one for the team. It's only by sticking together that they survive. Likewise, God designed for us to survive and to thrive spiritually by the encouragement that we gain from one another as the body of Christ. We get the privilege of thriving together. We are going to have opportunities this month to work out each one of those purposes of the church. We're going to gather together for the worship of God. We're going to build up one another. And we're going to go on mission at the end of the month. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for uh, your son who, uh, through his death, God obtains 
the church and begins this new covenant um, with you. And God, we no longer have to earn salvation or as we see it, earn salvation. But God, it's a freely given gift. And it's uh, what makes us right before you. It's where we are going to um, get to experience uh, peace, security, and eternal life. God, we thank you for these things. We thank you for your church. We pray for our church body this month as we go forward. And we, uh, we pray that we would be examples of what it is to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We pray that we would example the gospel message well. We pray that we would be bold in faith. And God, that we would love one another well. We would build each other up as we go on mission together. We pray these things in your name. Amen.